Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And no use beating around the bush. It looks like cannibalism is on the roster for today. That's right. And I just want to remind everybody that we're not going to be talking about a Hannibal Lecter. This is not a show about like modern cannibalism among uh, humans. Uh, this, uh, this is, is not the Dahmer cast now. Exactly. This is mostly going to deal with animals. And towards the end of the episode, we are going to discuss some uh, some of the questions surrounding cannibalism among ancient humans. Uh, but again, uh, if, if, don't worry. We're not going to be talking about like, like true crime cannibalism here. If that's your thing, there's plenty of that out there. You know where to find it. That's right. So we, we frequently discuss predation on the show, and we've, of course, discussed uh, cannibalism as well. You know, we've talked about how it factors into any given organism organism's life, whether it's predator or prey, as well as its role in human evolution. And I think we've also tried uh, – I mean, it, obviously, it can be fun to talk about especially grisly predatory practices in the wild, especially among, like, invertebrates. But uh, I, I feel like we try to do our best to – dispel predator hatred, right? right. Uh, we, we did a whole episode a while back about why predators are so beneficial for ecology and even for, for human civilization. Absolutely. I mean, you can't look at predators just as the villain of uh, any given piece, no matter how dramatic the music in a, in a given nature documentary might be. Mm-hmm. That's something I found uh, watching just so many nature documentaries with my son, is that earlier on, he would get a little wigged out by scenes of predation or pending predation because they just have such overly dramatic music and they're really playing into the idea that the predator is the villain. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm happy to say that he has, he's really gotten out of that. It's very rare now that uh, at, at age, he just turned seven, uh, it's very rare that he'll be wigged out by a predation scene. In fact, there will be scenes where, say, like some young uh, lions are ripping apart a water buffalo or something. Mm-hmm. And I'll be a little wigged out. I'm like, this is getting kind of bloody. And I'm like, you sure you want to finish watching this scene? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, they're, they're hungry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, he's not He's not uh, bloodthirsty for it. But he he has, he's already has this appreciation that, yeah, those, those animals are hungry. They need to eat. This is how they eat. This is part of the natural order of things. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it, it's it's a hard thing to appreciate because, of course, within a human context, if you see like one human chasing after another human trying to hurt them, we know that's morally bad. That's something to, to, to mm-hmm. oppose. But when you see a predator chasing prey, yeah, the prey is fighting for its life, but the predator is also fighting for its life. It's just obeying its instinct. That's part of what it does. And if if the predator doesn't get some prey, it too will die. Yeah, a wrong move on the on the part of a a, a predator giving chase could lead to its death as well via via starvation. If it were to say injure a leg. But of course, one of the strangest forms of predation, and one that often seems to, uh, even when you see it among animals, even when you know better, one that I think still strikes many people as a kind of taboo or a kind of violation, is when predation is turned inward on one's own kind, when it turns in to cannibalism. Yeah, and we've and we've again we've discussed cannibalism on the show before, especially uh, sexual cannibalism. I think more recently. 
Uh, yeah, we did a whole episode on sexual cannibalism, especially as it appears like among arachnids, in which there are some fascinating behaviors. It's far more complex and interesting than just like, well, a male spider mates with a female spider and then the female eats the male. There are all kinds of economic energy dynamics going on, different behavioral adaptations to that, to that kind of world. Uh, it's a really, truly complex and interesting subject. Yeah, and I think economics is the, the way I always try and, and, and focus on it, you know, just mm-hmm. thinking of just the, the economy of uh, turning sunlight into flesh, uh-huh. which is basically what happens with the food chain. And so you're going to reach a point where uh, even another member of your own species is energy. And what are you to do if you are, a, say, a scorpion or something? I mean, especially with the, with the scorpion, which is a, you know uh, uh, tends to be a solitary organism. Uh, you know, you're not going to let that energy just go to waste because you have some sort of uh, you know heightened scorpion uh, morality <laughs> <laughs> or uh, you know or ethical system in play. No, you're going to you're going to chow down on some cannibal meat. Well, no, again, animals are not humans. We with human brains can appreciate reasons that one should not eat one's own kind. Yeah, uh, but if in the rest of the animal the animal world, uh, cannibalism is widespread. Yeah. So I, t- today's episode, you know, a lot of what we're going to deal with is this idea of almost cannibals, uh, which is something I started thinking about while I was vacationing in Belize. Uh, I was out there with the family snorkeling, and I was flipping through a guidebook for Caribbean organisms, um, aquatic organisms, and I came across a couple of entries for the head shield slug. Okay, this is kind of like a, it looks sort of like a hammerhead slug. Yeah, it looks like a hammerhead sea slug. Uh, they're also known as bubble snails. Um, and, <laughs> and these are members of the clade um, Cephalospidia. And uh, the, the, these names, head shield, slugs, bubble, uh, snails, the name refers to their common head shield. This is a broad head that's used for burrowing in the sand, and it helps to keep um, the sand out of their mantle cavities. And most have, sh- have shells, but some species uh, have, uh, have, a, have a reduced shell, and some have uh, what's known as a, like a bubble shell. Now, I never got to actually see one while snorkeling, but the two entries in the book uh, got my, my mind uh, uh, working because there was the leech head shield slug, which was this beautiful dark blue indigo creature with bright yellow stripes. This is one of the counterintuitive things about nature is that clearly one of the most beautiful types of animal in the entire world are sea slugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, but then there was another one. There was the mysterious head shield slug. That's what it's called? Yeah, that was in, in, this, in this book. Yeah. And this may have been an older book. There may be updated names for some of these now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, this one look, had the color of just rotting vegetation. It's wearing camo. Yeah. And as for their diets, uh, the book listed uh, that the mysterious head shield slug feeds on other sea slugs, hmm. especially the, the lettuce sea slug. Okay, fair enough, right? There are a lot of sea slugs out there, and there's a lot of competition uh, in aquatic environments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're dealing with a, a very large subclass of the, the gastropoda family here. But the leech head shield slug, its diet was listed as other head shield slugs. <laughs> so it's getting even closer to home. Right, yeah. So it's not cannibalism. Uh, you know, they're not the same species. Uh, they're in the same family, but I suppose, you know, it's it's the name that, that gives me pause, the fact that they're both classified as head, head shield slugs. Uh-huh. Uh, well, that is a kind of interesting question to say, like, okay, we know cannibalism happens pretty often in the wild, and we'll discuss the conditions in, in just mm-hmm. a minute here. 
there are some limitations that are imposed by genetics, by the energy economy, and by epidemiology right. on uh, on how far you can go with practicing cannibalism as a lifestyle, as an animal. Uh, so there, these limitations are in place. Some of those limitations might not be in place if you're preying on something that's a lot like you but is not exactly you. Right. So, yeah, that's something we're going to talk about here. Uh, you know, what are some examples of um, – near cannibalism? Like what are some of the more closely related prey-predator relationships out there in the animal world? And then what does that say about us? What does that say about the way that humans think about cannibalism? In a weird way, this uh, episode topic even got me thinking about some of the strange economic dynamics of digital media. Oh, really? I promise that's not as boring as it sounds. (laughs) I'll come back to that later. I don't know. Digital media cannibalism, that sounds pretty exciting and, and probably just like spot on. And just a fact of life. Yes. So uh, let's refresh a little bit about cannibalism. So to eat one's own species is to commit an act of cannibalism. Mm -hmm. Now sometimes, especially we'll get into a few cases later on, sometimes this word, the word cannibalism is used for things that are not quite cannibalism, Mm -hmm. but that's where we get into that gray area of of near cannibalism. Yeah, Uh, and it's sometimes said with a derogatory context. But I mean, again, it's something that like, obviously if you kill and eat your next door neighbor, that's a bad thing. But animals, this is just sometimes an adaptation that animals have. That's right, And, and there are many different varieties and classifications. We've discussed some of these on the show before. Uh, sexual cannibalism, for instance, which, like you said, can be can be you know rather complex. It's not just a situation of, well, I mated with him. I guess now I'll consume his flesh. Yeah, a lot of times it depends on, for example, what the male brings to the table in the sexual encounter. There are some species of spider where uh, if a male shows up with a food gift for the female— for example, mm-hmm. he can he he can be more likely to avoid being cannibalized after mating. Whereas if he shows up and just wants to mate and doesn't bring her anything to snack on, he's more likely to be cannibalized. And this sort of makes sense, right? Like, are is he is he contributing additional food resources to the development of the offspring? Right. And then there are other examples like matrophagy, where babies uh, uh, where the offspring uh, consume the mother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there are examples uh, where um, a, a mother organism will consume the young. And a lot of these cases of cannibalism in the wild, they're, they're going to be influenced by, uh, you know, economic, um, uh, you know, resource uh, uh, deprivation issues. Mm-hmm. Like, are those offspring going to survive? Is something threatening them? Should then the energy of those, uh, the offspring be uh, uh, brought back into the host or into the uh, mother organism? Yeah. Now, I detect among the literature in, in uh, zoology and behavioral ecology and all that, that there, there's been a shift in consciousness about cannibalism over the previous decades mm-hmm. where I think it used to be more common for scientists to believe that cannibalism would was something animals would only do under extreme scenarios, like if they were in a starvation scenario, right. you know, just like the, the absolute limits of survival. And that has increasingly It's increasingly become clear that that's not the case, though animals don't, you know, they're not usually going to practice cannibalism as some kind of primary mode of living. There are actually a pretty wide range of scenarios in which cannibalism occurs, and we're we're documenting more and more of those scenarios all the time. It's not always just starvation at the very edge of survival and the peaks of stress. Yeah. So it's one of these things that is, uh, you know, we're learning is ubiquitous in the natural world. It, It offers some really key advantages. Though there are some downsides, 
uh, it remains highly popular without ever becoming like the thing, right? Yeah. Like you, you may your species might um, in, engage in cannibalism uh, for a number of different reasons, mm-hmm. but it, you are not going to become an obligate cannibal. Like that is where the system would collapse. Yeah, and I think there are some reasons that that's sort of impossible. I'll talk about that in just a minute. It reminds me a lot of some things I've heard about the band Primus. I've heard people— <laughs> Well, that's a sidestep, but okay. <laughs> well, I'm going with you. I'm not saying that the members of Primus are cannibals, but rather mm-hmm. um, I think it was Les Claypool himself who at one point pointed out that, like, they were in a good place popularity-wise. Like, they like they never, like, completely went out of fashion, but at the same time, like, they never just really blew up. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like most people— uh, if you ask them, they might say, oh, yeah, Primus is cool. I dig Primus. I myself have enjoyed a prim- Primus in concert before. Uh-huh. Uh, but I would, I would never say Primus is necessarily my favorite band. Uh, <laughs> likewise, cannibalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, <laughs> okay, you know, I'm with you. I see if, what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there, Primus has long been, by the way, my candidate for uh, what I joke about is like the least sexy or least romantic possible music. So yeah. like, people, you're trying to like – figure out what to put on for a Valentine's Day dinner or something like that. Uh, so you could go with like your Marvin Gaye or, you know, your classic romantic options. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got Primus. Yeah. For me, Primus is more like driving around music. You mm-hmm. know, uh, it, 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 nothing will scratch. If you, if you were thirsting for Primus, nothing else will do. Uh, but then there are plenty of other cases where it probably is not going to be the ideal soundtrack for life. <laughs> But anyway, back, back to cannibalism. So yes, there uh, it can be especially useful in certain ecological situations, uh, and, and uh, there are a lot of key benefits to the individual. On the other hand, it can impact community dynamics, uh, but the exact shape and scope of a species cannibalism, it varies greatly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so there are these obvious, like you're talking about economic and, and evolutionary limits on what forms cannibalism can take, even though it can to each individual animal that practices it, give all kinds of benefits. One example would be that, you know, when one species regularly eats another species, it is common that the prey species is in some way more vulnerable. It's smaller or weaker, uh, definitely more numerous than the predator species. You can't make a diet out of eating mostly or entirely animals that are, say, as good at killing you in self-defense as you are at killing them in predation, or the economics of acquisition just don't work out, right? You're not going to go chasing down something that's got all the same muscles and teeth and claws and all that as you. Right. You have to have some sort of an advantage, either a direct biological advantage or some sort of behavioral advantage, such as uh, pack hunting or something like that. But, but even in those cases, it can be exceedingly risky. Yeah. And, and think again how, I mean, I think we sometimes, uh, because we have medical care, we uh, downplay the risks to an animal in the wild of a mere, like, you know, leg injury or something like that, which can be fatal to an animal in the wild while, you know, you can just go to the hospital and get fixed up. So if adults of a species focus uh, on other similarly sized adults of the same species, hunting probably becomes too dangerous to sustain as a regular practice. Uh, Also, a species cannot make a diet out of eating mostly or entirely animals that are less numerous than itself because it's going to run out of food and starve or it's going to have to switch to a different food source. If an animal were to eat primarily or entirely members of its own species, uh, there would immediately be a couple of problems. I mean, number one, you'd have to think if it's a sexually reproducing species, this behavior is probably going to interfere with mating and lead to depletion of mates. 
Probably more importantly, the species couldn't survive. It would sort of eat itself to extinction. Like if every member of the species needed to eat one other member of the species every month in order to not starve to death, your best case scenario is having the number of individuals every month. Uh, now, maybe you think you could replace those through rapid reproduction, but where does the energy to create and grow those new bodies come from unless you're eating even more of your own kind? That's right. So uh, it seems kind of uh, – I was trying to find an example of something that comes close, but it seems to me you can't really have something like an obligate cannibal species, something that only eats its own kind. That seems like a, an, an absurdity. Yes. So you have that fact, but then you also have the fact that we do observe lots of in-species cannibalistic behavior in the wild. In the wild, and we know that this can only take place in sort of limited conditions and scenarios. And we're discovering more and more of those types of scenarios all the time. Here's a common one. We know you can't just eat members of your own species for your entire diet uh, and have every member of your species do this for your entire life or the species would cease to exist. But within certain phases of life, cannibalism can be a primary strategy. Consider the larval stage of many amphibians. Uh, you have like cannibal morph larvae of tiger salamanders. We talked about those in our episode on salamanders with Mark Mandika. Yeah. Or think about the cannibalistic tadpoles of toad species like the spadefoot toad. And this is where the biggest tadpoles in a small body of water will eat the smaller ones to survive and grow even bigger. It's sort of like a letting letting the strongest of the, of the litter absorb the energy of all the others. Now, obviously, this kind of strategy can't be continued for the amphibian's entire life cycle, but it can work in a phase of the life cycle because there are other energy inputs into that phase. Another great example from another episode we had with a, with a guest was think about intrauterine cannibalism in some shark species, like we talked about with Mara Hart, where some unborn sharks will swim over and eat their siblings or half-siblings before they even leave their mother's uterus. Do we talk about cannibalism with all of our guests? <laughs> I don't know. It does seem to come up a good bit. <laughs> Maybe we do. Uh, I don't think we brought either of these up, did we? Uh, I mean, I guess they were just an innate part of the uh, the conversation and the expertise of the guests. Maybe we just invite creepy guests. <laughs> oh, they're not creepy. <laughs> Maybe we're creepy. We're talking um, about cannibalism right now. We're definitely creepy. Uh, so while cannibalism can't be the entire diet of a species, it can be an important supplemental part of a diet, especially in scenarios of environmental stress. And it can even reduce competition when times are tough. Uh, one example here is that cannibalism, according to what I've read, it's much more common if you live life in the water. Oh, yes, uh, it, definitely. Yeah, if you're wet, you're probably involved in cannibalism in some way. It just happens a lot more in aquatic environments. Uh, for example, when fish are foraging for food – one type of energy source they will often come across is little spherules of lipids and energetic materials floating in the water, other fish eggs. Ah. Uh, these fill the waters of the ocean by the bazillions, and this will include some eggs of their own species, which they basically just eat discriminately along with the other eggs. Oh, we recently did the episode on the Christmas uh, Island crabs. Oh, yeah, and where it, they just stuff the crab larva right yeah. into their mouths. Yeah. I mean, how do you know if it's your own offspring? Chances are it's not. There's so many out there. It's probably <laughs> somebody else's. Also, I think I accidentally said they, they will eat them discriminately. Obviously, they eat them indiscriminately is what I mean. Uh, I, fish don't discriminate. 
But yeah, it works out because fish produce a lot of eggs under the evolutionary assumption that most of the eggs, many of the eggs at least, will not survive. And the eggs of one's own species are only a supplemental part of the adult fish's diet, not the whole thing for the whole species, which again would be a problem. But the phenomenon of adults eating young of their own species actually happens in many scenarios outside the water, too. Obviously, it would make no sense for animals to have instincts to kill and eat all of their own young. But there is some selective strategic snacking of this kind, like often rodent mothers will eat some of their own litters, especially those that are sickly or don't seem like they're going to thrive. Male carnivores, like lions, will sometimes eat the cubs sired by another male, and this tends to increase the female lion's receptivity to mating in the pride. Uh, Yeah, this is seen in bears as well, for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. And then there are some really strange cases that we're observing, again, more and more all the time, Even with animals once thought to be herbivores engaging in occasional cannibalism. Here's one I came across. Hippos. What? 100% herbivores, right? Well, that's what one I always assumed. I mean, you hear hear about like the the vast amount of vegetation that a given hippo needs to consume. And that is their primary diet. They mostly are herbivores, but occasionally they'll just be versatile. (laughs) So we used to think they're 100% herbivores. They're mostly herbivores, except now it's been observed that sometimes they'll kill and eat an impala or even (laughs) sometimes they will eat a fellow hippopotamus. Oh, wow. Well, they are ferocious. I mean, we can't take that away from them. So there are just more and more examples all the time that science is documenting uh, about ways that animals will occasionally or opportunistically or even in some controlled ways regularly engage in direct in-species cannibalism. Yeah, I was uh, reading the uh, amazingly titled 2010 paper, Cannibals in Space. (laughs) The Co-Evolution of Cannibalism and Dispersal in Spatially Structured Populations. Uh-huh. And um, in, in this, the, the authors point out that the propensity for cannibalism, is, you know, it's going to vary considerably among even closely related species. And that a lot of questions uh, remain concerning exactly what drives variation in the evolution of cannibalism across and even within a species. And the the same can be said for the evolutionary consequences of cannibalism. Yeah, a lot about cannibalism remains an open question. There's still a ton we don't know. But I think one thing that is emerging is we're getting some good ideas of what the major downsides to cannibalism are. Like what are the limitations that are imposed on it as a practice? And so I want to mention, I think, three major ones. There there may be other ones, but these are three major ones. One is if you're practicing cannibalism, you could end up eating animals closely related to you. And given the self-preserving tendencies of genes in evolution, there's going to be a selection pressure against this. Genes will tend to come about and become prevalent within the species that say, don't eat each other if you have this gene. Hmm. Also, as we mentioned earlier, it's risky to try to kill and eat an animal that has all the same equipment you do, the teeth, the muscles, the fighting abilities. It's easier to go after weaker prey, and there's usually some kind of weaker prey out there. But there are ways around both of these. I mean, for one thing, you can try to avoid eating animals you're closely related to, even if you're eating your own species, by evolving ways of detecting relatedness. So maybe, you know, there's some gene that allows you to recognize who is your from your immediate family and not eat them. I actually have an example of this. We'll come back to that later. 
Okay. Uh, another thing you can get around is that animals with cannibalistic tendencies can get around the problem of fighting uh, something, fighting something just as big and dangerous as as you are by eating smaller, weaker conspecifics. And this can take the form of sexual cannibalism, like in some spiders, like the redback spider, where there's a huge difference in size between the males and females, and it works out just fine for the females to eat the males after mating. Or this can happen with adults preying on larvae or smaller juveniles of their own species. But finally, one last big problem with cannibalism, and and we'll come back to this. When you eat your own kind, you put yourself at risk of catching diseases and parasites. Mm. You're more likely to consume or otherwise expose yourself to something bad that can infect your species if you're eating animals that are already of your own same species. Yeah, you're basically diving into a swimming pool of this other individual's uh, potential viruses and uh, illnesses. You're you're diving into a swimming pool marked biohazard. Yeah. Yeah. So there's always a cost-benefit calculation going on. And I'm not saying, obviously, that uh, the animals are doing this calculation consciously in their heads, but somehow this calculation is being worked out. Yes. There are benefits to cannibalism. There's an obvious energy advantage, and there are all these downsides. And so the circumstances and and the specific traits of each individual species are going to interact to determine when cannibalism is actually appropriate. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to continue exploring this topic. And uh, we're going to kick off by discussing this idea of near cannibalism a little bit more. All right, we're back. So we were just talking about the limitations of, well, all of the examples we see of cannibalism in the natural world, true cannibalism, where members of one animal species are eating members of the same animal species, uh, and then limitations on when cannibalism can be practiced and what what might hold it, hold it at bay from becoming too prevalent. Uh, but there are probably examples of animals doing something that is not quite cannibalism, but where they're eating something that's kind of close to them. Yes. Yeah, and I, so I started looking around uh, for answers on this. And uh, uh, one thing that, that did come up when I was looking for near cannibalism mm-hmm. in, uh, in uh, you know, scholarly, scholarly works and academic papers, I, I ended up running across it in some uh, myth uh, papers on myth and medieval histories. Okay. And uh, uh, I found this rather telling, not so much about like what's going on in the animal kingdom, but about like why I'm fascinated with it, why this idea of near cannibalism is perhaps even a little more interesting than uh, interesting to me uh, compared to abs- absolute cannibalism. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for instance, there are medieval accounts of the Danes uh, roasting animal flesh to eat uh, uh, alongside, like right next to heaped uh, the heaped human dead from a battle. Oh, so like feasting on the battlegrounds with their slain enemies around them, almost sort of suggesting a mental connection. Uh, yeah, and of course, again, these are uh, accounts of the Danes, probably yeah. you know, with with the idea of portraying them as being in this state of of near cannibalism. Like, mm-hmm. look at that—they're just cooking their meat right next to the bodies of the dead. They're just—they're just one misstep away from going full cannibal. The Romans would never do anything like that. <laughs> um, another thing that came up came up with was the. Uh, Myth of Lycaon, okay. which we recently discussed. And there's an act of near cannibalism there as well. Mm-hmm. Where uh, the, the flesh of a human is offered up to the god Zeus to say like, hey, Zeus, do you want to eat some human flesh? Like, they're trying to trick Zeus. Right. Uh, now, and, granted, Zeus, Zeus is not doesn't, a human. Yeah. He is a god, but, but uh, this is Sort of, yeah. I mean, it seems like species enough. Like if, if, if the gods of Greek mythology can mate with humans— 
Mm-hmm. It seems like that they they should be like uh, biologically close enough that eating us would be cannibalism, right? Right. And of course, you know, the god, especially the Greek gods, they were down for any number of horrible acts. They right. they would turn into an animal to mate with a human, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I guess the thing is, th- they they probably are not going to look kindly on being tricked into doing anything vile that they didn't want to do. No, and of course, uh, when Zeus was almost tricked into eating human flesh, he retaliated by, there are different tellings of the story. Sometimes he retaliates by just like killing a bunch of people. Sometimes he retaliates by turning the king who tried to trick him into a werewolf. Yes. Uh, as pointed out by C. Downham in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Portrayals of Vikings in the Fragmentary Annals of Ireland, near cannibalism and near paganism were considered the apotheosis of evil. Yeah, you see this in many ancient sources. It's like cannibalism is sort of held out as it's it's the archetype of barbarism. Right. You know, it's like the ultimate act that in itself, in an iconic way, shows that somebody is not civilized and not good. And there's something, uh, as, as he's pointing out here, there's something tantalizing about like that – that that moment before cannibalism, that or that moment before paganism, like that slip, that decline yeah. into this barbarous nature, uh, the idea that oh, they're not cannibals now, but I bet they'll be cannibals tomorrow because look what they're doing right now, and of course, uh, in in the animal kingdom, all these species were you know we're looking at cannibalism uh, is already in the blueprint, like it's already part of the of of the, of the act, uh, but there is there, there's something about um, uh, about uh, about that to the the, the human mind, I think mm. you know, because we can't help but think of uh, of uh, of all of these changes taking place not against the the in, in the time scale of, uh, of evolutionary history, but we think about it within the terms of a human lifespan and the choices that we make. But anyway, b- back to just like purely the the animal world here. Okay, uh, I did run across um, a study uh, that uh, points at a possible case of cannibal fueled speciation. Hmm. Because I think that's something to interesting to think of. Because it's like if I'm, if if, uh, if one if within a species, members of that species are deciding to just go full cannibal, mm-hmm. like they're like, oh, I can just eat my own species all the time. If that were to happen, could that conceivably lead to uh, a speciation event where the cannibals right. become their own species? Oh yeah, that's an interesting question. And so uh, this this study I found, a 2017 study, and I should stress that this is an unrefereed uh, preprint in BioArchive. Right. So caveats on not going through peer review yet. Right. Uh, but in it, the authors point to cannibalism in South American um, annual killifish, that's Australobias, uh, as a possible speciation event. So they're, they're, they're presenting uh, what they refer to as an alternate uh, hypothesis uh, for uh, giant dwarf speciation, where, um, where some of these, uh, where basically the, the, the killifish here have evolved uh, in sympathy without uh, geographic uh, uh, separation by character, displacement, and cannibalism. But in this, the, the authors uh, are discussing uh, cannibalism in South American annual killifish, and uh, the idea here is that it could it could be a speciation event uh, uh, going on here uh, that uh, uh, that accounts for giant dwarf speciation. So basically, mm. bigger bigger killifish versus the smaller killifish. And cannibalism could play a role in that. Right, right. That that, that could be uh, what's uh, what's pushing uh, this species into two species based on the size of the individuals. Yeah, that's interesting. If I am understanding their argument correctly. Here. Okay. 
Now, there's one thing that uh, I had been thinking about as a potential case of near cannibalism, which we've already sort of discussed in a previous episode called Strange Milk. So I won't linger on it too long. Mm -hmm. This has come up before. But I, I just wanted to remind us of one form of feeding that could be seen as analogous to cannibalism but without the element of lethal predation. And that is found in various systems where an adult animal feeds its offspring with some part of its own body. Ah, yes. So this is not predation. The offspring does not necessarily kill and eat the adult, uh, but it could be considered a form of alternative cannibalism, as if I could, like, rip off one of my arms and feed it to my kids. Interesting. And the uh, great example here is the the type of amphibian known as Sicilians. Now, it's not spelled like from Sicily. It's C-A-E-C-I-L-I-A-N. Uh, Sicilians are amphibians. They're kind of like frogs and salamanders, but they've got no legs. They look like a cross between a snake and a worm, like a, like a wet earth snake. They tend to live underground, so we rarely see them. And if you do see one, you might mistake it for some kind of gigantic worm. Yes, I remember we we talked about the about the, the about the Sicilians with uh, Mark Mandinka. Oh yeah. And one of the things we talked about with the uh, Sicilians in the strange milk episode was that after the mother of a Sicilian species called a Bulangarula titanus gives birth, she turns her outer skin into a nutrient-rich secretion for her offspring. And then the young grow special teeth. I've seen these uh, referred to as shaped like a slotted spoon. (laughs) So they they grow special teeth, uh, quote, which they use to peel and eat the outer layer of their mother's modified skin. And that's a quote from a 2006 paper in Nature. So basically, the mother turns her skin into like this cheese-like substance, and then the juvenile worm-like creatures chew off their mother's skin. They peel her like a like a vegetable. This is interesting. This is it's very it's consensual. It's it's not yeah. just a, a situation where the the young eat the mother, but the mother is uh, mother sa- is essentially saying here, take of this specially prepared skin. And eat it in remembrance of me. Yes, take of my body, take of my skin. I mean, it seems to combine multiple elements of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre (laughs) together at once, but somehow without the massacre. So there's the peeling of skin, peeling the skin off, and a form of near cannibalism, but without the elements of predation. The, The willing adult says, try my skin, it's good, and they do. That's what we need for the, for the to, to reboot the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. Is we need to we need to take the massacre out massacre out of it and just have <laughs> everything else happening consensually, and ultimately that's going to be more terrifying. I think it's just about a consensual human barbecue cook from from Texas. Yeah, I, you know I've had that thought with a few different horror films that have come out, where you know they're they're. You know, the people behind them are sometimes pushing the boundaries and they're like, and it's all about like horrible things being done to people. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I'm thinking, you know, the, the creators here, obviously they think that this is, that this is horrible and this is a, a terrifying vision of, of life. But, but what if, uh, what if it, what if everyone was engaging in it willingly? Like, you know, <laughs> then it would put an entirely different spin and arguably a more like thought provoking and even terrifying spin. I feel like that's often what Black Mirror is. Black yeah. Mirror is often like a what would otherwise be like a horror movie or a horror show, except most of the time the people who are the victims of whatever's happening in the episode get involved consensually. Yeah. Because yeah. it's technology. Because it's, it's technology. Yeah. Exactly. 
Like, for instance, if you had a, a Friday the 13th film where all of the young people went off to camp mm-hmm. and the thing that they all really hoped for, the, the thing they desired most of all was to be massacred by uh, the mass killer that roams the woods, <laughs> you know, th- that that would fulfill some sort of deep desire in them, some desire for, I don't know, like teenage martyrdom or something. Like that ultimately, like that 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 gets me thinking a lot more. Uh, there's a sort of almost element of that in Hellraiser, I guess. People yeah. go looking for trouble, messing around with a puzzle box they should know better than. Yeah, well, and of course that would make sense. Uh, Clive Barker, is especially you know, the, the younger Clive Barker, I think he, he did engage in a lot, of more, a lot more uh, subversive treatment of these things. Well, speaking of Clive Barker, <laughs> okay. Uh, on, on that, <laughs> you know, I've, I thought of Clive Barker already earlier in this episode when there were a couple times where you just said flesh, <laughs> and I was like, well, you kind of can't do that without saying it in the Doug Bradley voice. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we're big fans of some of the Hellraiser films, and and uh, <laughs> and I I, I definitely hold up um, uh, some of Barker's uh, uh, work, especially his, his uh, Books of Blood short stories. There's some some really good short stories in those collections. Yeah, I've always meant to read them. I never have yet. But we should get back to near cannibalism. Well, let's bring things uh, around to the human realm. Okie doke. Or at least the, you know, the the ancient human realm. Okay. So let's talk about humans and Neanderthals. Okay. So evidence has been presented and sometimes dismissed regarding, regarding cannibalism among both ancient humans, though uh, I, it gets kind of complicated because we're talking about ancient humans, but technically you call these modern humans. Mm-hmm. They're they're ancient from our standpoint, mm-hmm. but they are evolutionarily modern humans. So uh, at any rate, there's, there's, there are arguments and evidence for both uh, these ancient modern humans and Neanderthals engaging in cannibalism. And as we've discussed on the show before, uh, the evidence uh, that scientists look for uh, when they're talking about this, they're looking for signs of processing on the bones. In other words, it's not enough that a human or a Neanderthal skull was caved in by a heavy object. Uh, but are there signs of the bodies having been systematically or ritually stripped of meat or marrow for the purposes of consumption? And uh, so, so that's one of the things they look for. And as Bill Shute points out in his, uh, his excellent book, Cannibalism, archaeologists generally want to match this sort of evidence up with similar damage on the bones of game animals from the same site. So that way they can say, look, this is what these people were doing to the bones of animals that were clearly a prey species, and here's what was done to the bones of other members of the species. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, more of a direct comparison to make here so that you can say this looks like this was cannibalism. That all makes sense? There's some pretty convincing convincing evidence that Neanderthals engaged in cannibalism, at least survival cannibalism. And Shute points out uh, in his book that the near Neanderthal species Homo antecessor, quote, may have simply considered others of their kind to be food. Hmm. And he pointed out, you know, that, again, this is hardly out of step with the rest of the animal kingdom. Right. Uh, cannibalism is ubiquitous, so it's not surprising that Neanderthals or a Neanderthal ancestor or that Homo sapiens engaged in this practice. Right. But what, what's interesting us the most for this episode is the question of near cannibalism, right? Whether ancient uh, modern humans considered Neanderthals prey or vice versa. Mm-hmm. How much uh, consumption of this, of this, this other uh, man-like creature was going on? This, how much near cannibalism was happening? So for starters, 
we, we have some competing theories, uh, but for the most part, we don't know exactly what happened to the Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. They Obviously, they went extinct, and we know that they, they likely transitioned from Homo antecessor to Homo neanderthalensis uh, about, about 150,000 years ago, and then they went extinct 30,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, um, the, the period of their existence, uh, as far as we understand it. Uh, one hypothesis that, that's out there is that humans and the Neanderthals interbred and that they simply became us, or at least they became those of us with some portion of Neanderthal DNA. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there, is, there is DNA evidence to support this. And then there, but there are some that uh, take issue with leaning too heavily on this idea, apparently. Uh, paleoanthropologist uh, Ian Tattersall, who uh, shoot interviews in the cannibalism book, um, uh, th- this guy's a critic of the idea, and he argues that, quote, structurally, anatomically, and presumably behaviorally, too, Neanderthals and modern humans were very, very different. And he says that while a certain amount of genetic exchange definitely took place, uh, he doesn't think that they were absorbed into our population through interbreeding uh, alone. Okay. Now, interestingly, Tattersall points out that modern humans and Neanderthals managed to share the Near East for a long time, but this was before we became creatures of symbolism. Uh, as Shute puts it, quote, an advanced symbolism-driven species. Mm. Uh, these new humans, at least, uh, outcompeted the Neanderthals for resources, uh, and it's reasonable to expect that they did a, a bit more than that, right? When you look at at uh, certainly the way humans have uh, have treated other groups of humans um, you know, throughout history. Mm-hmm. Now, some researchers have argued in support of, um, of, of predation and cannibalism that, that uh, Homo sapiens uh, uh, hunted and consumed Neanderthal meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's currently no clear fossil evidence that this occurred. So it, it might seem uh, like something that they would have done. Mm-hmm. We, can, we can point to aspects of human nature and, and, uh, and humanity's historical treatment of others. But when it comes down to the hard fossil evidence of it, when it comes down to looking at bones and looking for signs of processing, uh, it's just not there. Again, we have clear evidence of cannibalism in either group of Homo sapiens eating Homo sapiens, of uh-huh. Neanderthals eating Neanderthals. Uh-huh. But... Uh, if it occurred, we don't have any evidence of actual intragenous cannibalism huh. between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. Oh, that's interesting. That, I, be, that being said, I think if, if you were to present me with a time machine and make me place money on, on, this, on, on the, the chances mm-hmm. that humans ate Neanderthals, I would personally um, want to um, uh, place my bet on humans eating Neanderthals. Well, I'd say that's probably because humans will eat anything. <laughs> It's true. If something existed, humans probably ate it, I bet. Generally a safe bet. Now let's back up out of the, uh, the, the human realm here. And I want to come back to something you said earlier about uh, how a particular cannibalizing species might make sure that it's not cannibalizing its own young. Oh, yeah, or or members of its own near family. Right. Uh, because then you the closer a relative within your own species is, the more genes you probably share with them, which makes it more likely that some of those genes would, uh, would discourage you from eating other carriers. Right. And so I found a, a recent article that uh, deals with this, a Max Planck Society uh, article titled A Peptide Against Cannibalism from uh, April of 2019. Mm-hmm. The researchers noted that nematodes in the genus Pristianchus were all, all about some cannibalism uh-huh. <laughs> uh, because their favorite food is worm larvae. Okay. So how do you keep from consuming your own offspring? 
Well, uh, the answer, they said, is that they carry a, quote, small, highly variable protein on their surfaces. So what they did is they experimented by offering adult worms of different, uh, of, of different species, uh, again, within this uh, genus. Uh, they, they gave them uh, their own larva to potentially eat, okay. larva of a closely related species, or larva of a related line within their own species. Okay. And in all cases, they avoided their own larva but tore into everything else. So okay. they, they were they were totally fine for eating another species that's closely related to them, that near cannibalism. Mm-hmm. They were also you know, readily uh, engaging in, in abs- absolute cannibalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, this peptide was at least aiding in their identification of their own offspring and preventing them from eating uh, those, uh, those larvae. Uh, they identified uh, this particular gene, which uh, they called self-1, uh, as playing a key role in distinguishing self from non-self. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, it doesn't seem like it's the only factor in the decision to attack or not, and then this is ultimately one of those areas where more research is going to be needed. Uh, but it does give us some idea of the kinds of um, of mechanisms that are in place, the kind of uh, fail-safes that are in place to keep cannibalism from just decimating a species. Yeah, and it's really interesting trying to work out exactly when and how those could controls fall into place. All right, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Now, I want to talk about something related to what you were just saying, especially when it comes to preying on the larva of your own species or related species. Uh, This is a case of true cannibalism, but with interesting features. Uh, I want to talk about the cane toad or Rinella marina. Okay. So the cane toad has an almost beautifully, horribly ironic history in Australia. I'm sure I'm sure all oh, of our yeah. Australian listeners are pulling their hair out right now uh, because uh, if you, if you read Australian writers talk about the cane toad, they there's uh, I don't want to overgeneralize, but there is very often utter revulsion. Just the idea that they want to beat all these things to death with a sock full of quarters. <laughs> now we we don't encourage uh, wanton violence against wild animals. But there's a reason behind this. So in the 1930s, Australia had a problem protecting sugarcane crops from populations of a pest known as the cane beetle. And in order to control beetle populations in sugarcane agriculture, they introduced a South American toad. I think this was in 1935. It was the cane toad. They brought it to Australia because it was believed that this toad would eat up the beetles that were getting to their crops. And this turned out to be a horrible idea. The cane toad became a kind of breakout character, right? It's like the Fonz or <laughs> Urkel, you know. It's like mm-hmm. it, it took on a, a life of its own uh, for the continent of Australia. It did eat some cane beetles, but it also became extremely numerous and ate all kinds of other insects, and its populations in Australia just exploded. So it's another case of uh, an already unbalanced environmental situation due to uh, agricultural activities. And then they intentionally introduce an invasive species. Yes. And things go out of whack. Very bad idea. And what's worse, the native marsupial and reptile predators of Australia, like crocodiles and like coals, 
that might have been expected to control an exploding toad population by eating the toads were totally unprepared because the cane toad produces toxins that kill the predators that eat them. So since the cane toad was out of its native range, the predators had no resistance to these toxins and no instinctual avoidance of the cane toads. So simply introducing these like poison candy toads into the ecosystem was devastating to some predator populations. But this threat to predators doesn't apply only to the marsupials and the reptiles like crocodiles that might eat the adult cane toads. It would also apply to perhaps smaller predators that tried to eat the cane toads, also poisonous eggs. The eggs have similar poisons. So I was reading a New York Times article from 2011 about research on cane toads. Uh, The article is by Natalie Angier. Uh, but the, the article tells the story of a scientist named Dr. Richard Shine, a biologist at the University of Sydney in Australia, who began to notice years back that cane toad eggs were being depleted by something. And at first he assumed that some predator was at risk of mass poisoning by eating these killer toad eggs. Uh, to quote from the article, Follow-up field studies soon revealed the identity of the caviar thieves. To the researchers' astonishment, Dr. Shine said, it was cane toads themselves, or rather their tadpoles, which would swim over to each fresh batch of ranilla eggs and, quote, desperately consume every slick black spherelet they could find. And then a 2011 study in the journal Animal Behavior found that Not only do cane toads cannibalize eggs from their own species, they strongly prefer them. Ah. When given the option to eat cane toad eggs or other food sources like similar eggs from another amphibian species, the cane toads went right for the delicious cane toad eggs. And this was just the cane toads that did this. It wasn't other uh, frogs or uh, amphibian species. Now, remember that while lots of species practice cannibalism under some circumstances, no species is exclusively obligated cannibalistic, like that would make no sense. But what if you're kind of edging in that direction by at least in one stage of life preferring to eat your own kind over other forms of prey? Yeah, we're definitely in that near, well, we're definitely in that, that zone where it's cannibalism, but is it potentially becoming something else? Now, you would think since this is tadpoles eating eggs of the same species, you think maybe once you metamorphose into an adult cane toad, you'd get past this uh, this problem, right? The answer is no. Studies have also shown that, that like mid-sized adult cane toads like to eat smaller, younger cane toads. <laughs> they even have like deceptive lure tactics where they will wiggle the toes of their back feet in water to attract smaller conspecifics and then just literally swallow them whole. So as we've discussed, there's lots of occasional opportunistic cannibalism in the animal world. But what causes the cane toads to go so hard after their own species? Why do cane toads prey on other cane toads so aggressively? And the researchers here in in this paper I mentioned hypothesized several answers with regard to the cannibalization of eggs by by cane toad tadpoles. Uh, Number one, it eliminates rivals who you're probably not related to. And this has to do with the specifics of the timing of uh, 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 ovipositing and, and uh, mating by cane toads. Obviously, it doesn't make evolutionary sense to eat your own brothers and sisters, but due to the timing of cane toad reproduction, if you're a cane toad tadpole and there are eggs in the pond with you, you can be pretty sure they belong to some other family of cane toads. <laughs> 
Number two, eating the eggs speeds up the maturation of tadpoles. Obviously, it's free energy. And three, uh, the resource is abundant since it's poisonous and other potential predators can't eat it, but you can since cane toads are immune to their own poison. So they're kind of like the de facto uh, specialized predator of their own young. It's it's like when, you know, somebody orders something for lunch and there's one thing out on the buffet that you're the only person in the office that likes. <laughs> so it's all for you. Enjoy this braised red cabbage, Robert. <laughs> And uh, there's a quote from from Dr. Shine in that uh, Times article where he says, quote, We're talking about a tropical animal that was relocated to one of the driest places on Earth. Cannibalism is one of those clever tricks that makes it such a superb colonizer and a survival machine, talking about the cane toad. Um, now, of course, this does come with some of the regular downsides of cannibalism. Like I came across a 2011 paper with a pretty great title – also, uh, Richard Shine was one of the authors on this, quote, you are what you eat, parasite transferring cannibalistic cane toads. <laughs> so, you know, do cane toads risk infection and paras uh, parasitization by eating their own? The answer is, oh, yes. When a cane toad eats another cane toad infected with, for example, nematode lungworms, this study found that the cannibal toad can end up with viable lungworms in its own body. So they are paying this cost for their cannibalism behaviors. And nevertheless, I was reading in another context that cane toads are so aggressively cannibalistic that the, that uh, cane toad juice from the poison glands of an adult cane toad uh, is one of the best imaginable baits for a trap for catching cane toad tadpoles. Oh, wow. Ca ca I think I said cane toad. Cane toad tadpoles. That's a tongue twister. Uh, so it, it smells like eggs, right, because they have these same uh, chemicals and poisons. And it's an ingenious method for removing the tadpoles of this invasive species from a water source without harming other creatures. Like the cannibalistic tadpoles are attracted to it in swarms because, of course, they want to eat the eggs of their own kind. And other animals are not really attracted to it at all. So you can put traps out with this and catch thousands of cane toad tadpoles and almost nothing else. But I, I think it seems like this species in Australia in particular favors cannibalism so aggressively because it's a tough physical environment. Like they need to reproduce in water and yet it's a relatively dry landscape. And yet at the same time, there's an abundance of their own species due to a lack of adapted predators. Interesting. So I feel like one of the crazy things about this is that a lot of what they're observing here, it's, it's, it's nothing you would observe at least on this scale in their natural habitat. Like it, they're, uh, the, the cane toads of Australia um, have this kind of bloated and, and unnatural um, uh, space in the ecosystem that has yet to be, uh, you know, sort of recalibrated uh, by other factors. Yeah. Now, I don't know what their, uh, what their cannibalistic tendencies are like within their native range. It might be something equivalent, but, uh, but this seemed to be focused on the ones that are in Australia. So I'm not sure how prevalent this would be in the species as they live in South America. It's like if, uh, you know, if cannibals took over a daycare. <laughs> like, and you observed it on like the first day of activities, uh -huh. you know, it's like everything's going to be crazy that first day. Hopefully by day three or four, 
things would have have settled down and or the police had shown up, et cetera. Uh, and of course, before that, before the cannibals took over the daycare, uh, you would not have this um, this out of balance uh, scenario in which to observe how things would take place. That's a beautiful analogy, Robert. <laughs> uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to mention just one more type of predation that we might consider a kind of close analogy to cannibalism. And that is when you kill and eat an animal that is not the same species as you. So it's not cannibalism, but which makes a living the same way you do. Mm. Maybe he does the same job as you. Ah. And this brings us to a biological concept known as intra-guild predation. Uh, in the words of entomologists Jay Rosenheim and Jason Harmon, intra-guild uh, intra predation occurs, quote, when two consumers that share a resource and which therefore are potential competitors also engage in predator-prey interactions with each other. So you've got two different species competing for the same resource, uh, like how at different times maybe Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam are both trying to go hunting for Bugs Bunny. But what if instead Elmer Fudd kills and eats Yosemite Sam? Uh. See, this solves two survival problems at the same time. It provides an immediate meal. You get to eat Yosemite Sam and there's energy in that. But it also reduces future competition for the wabbit, right? All oh, right. This is a, it's a basic uh, Freddy versus Jason scenario. Right. Yeah, that's pretty good. So the, the benefits of this kind of thing are obvious. And there, there are a couple of versions here. There is asymmetrical intraguild predation, and this occurs when two species compete for the same prey resources, and one of those two species also kills and eats the other. Okay. And then there's what you might guess the other half of that, uh, the other side of that coin, symmetrical intraguild predation. It's when two species are in competition, and they also both kill and eat one another. If one predator is regularly bigger than the other or something, this kind of two-way mutual predation can often cross the lines of life phases where, say, one predator, uh, adults of one predator prey on the juveniles of the other predator. Okay, so with asymmetrical um uh, intraguild predation, there's always going to be probably a clear winner. Yeah. Uh, like the the larger of the two competing species is going to be the one that eats the smaller. But in symmetrical intraguild predation, it could go either way depending on uh, body size, uh, phase of life, uh, or other factors of superiority. Exactly. And okay. so th this type of stuff often happens in insects and arthropods that share the same prey, like in some centipedes. But it also occurs in large mammalian carnivores like canids and felids. They often prey on one another when they're competing for the same food resources, for example, lions and wolves or coyotes and foxes or bobcats. According to a 1999 paper in The American Naturalist by, uh, by Palomaris and Caro, uh, quote, interspecific killing among mammalian carnivores is common in nature and accounts for up to 68% of known mortalities in some species. So there are some carnivorous predatory mammals for which more than two-thirds of their deaths are caused by other predatory mammals. And because intraguild predation accomplishes two different goals at the same time, intraguild predation can be extremely useful as a survival adaptation. It's a very efficient way to do things. Of course, since members of the same species are often in competition for the same resources, the same advantages that apply to intraguild predation often apply to straight-up cannibalism, right? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you you and the other one of your species, you're, you're probably also in competition. But straight-up cannibalism is more likely to come with the other down Side, such as reducing the gene pool of your own species, making mating more difficult, exposing you to more parasites and diseases, and so forth. 
Now, you said you were going to bring all of this back to social media. <laughs> no, the, I, was, I was thinking about this, and I started to think that I see parallels between the strategy of intra-guild predation and some types of business strategies, especially like in digital media where we work. So I want you to think about this example. What did Facebook do to the rest of the web? Like digital media companies are in competition for audience. You can almost think about audience as their prey in a way. Mm -hmm. they, they make money when more people spend more time on their site or their platform. Facebook was a digital media company in competition for users' attention and time. And their competitors were the other places where people might spend their time on digital devices, other websites, other apps, other platforms. So – Seems to me Facebook said, you know, instead of just competing with these other media platforms, I will eat them. <laughs> and that's sort of what it did, right? So now instead of just going to uh, your blog or homepage or whatever, people would go to your Facebook page or just follow you on Facebook or rely on Facebook to keep people updated on what you're doing, whether you're a person or a business or a content provider. And I think the analogy holds that Facebook functions like an asymmetrical intra-guild predator here. It gets double benefits, both by getting a direct meal off of you, like it gets the traffic that you would be getting elsewhere that gets just subsumed into its diet of traffic, and it reduces competition in the future by training people ever more to just go directly to Facebook instead of to other sites and apps. And it makes me wonder if there are other examples in, in the business world where there is something like intra-guild predation going on, where, where one business gets double benefits out of consuming or subsuming another one. Yeah, I think you may have something – you may have a point there. I mean also it's very easy to imagine any of these large media companies as kind of a bloated cannibal king right. uh, <laughs> feasting and blood-soaked on a, on a pyramid of bones of its competitors uh -huh. uh, and the attentions of its clients. I couldn't put it any better than that, Robert. <laughs> Uh, but but I feel like we're kind of giving normal predators uh, and normal cannibals a bad name by associating them with uh, with that kind of ghastly, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, human-centric image. That's true. Normal animals, even the ones that sometimes practice cannibalism, are not corporations. Don't decide that hippos are bad now just because occasionally hippos will eat another hippo. They're still – they're hippos. They're animals. They're, they're living within an ecology and they're doing what they have to do to survive. Yeah. I mean it's like with mice and hamsters and so forth. You know, it's like you can – if you get one as a pet and you, and you're, you end up tricking yourself or falling into this idea of thinking them, it's like tiny furry people mm -hmm. and you're a little furry friend that lives in this box and scurries around – and then – but then if you're going to become horrified when they engage in something inhuman such as cannibalizing their young, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's – I mean you should take that as a learning lesson. You know, that this is uh, – these are the perils of, uh, of anthropomorphizing uh, the animal world and, and, and the wild world and the natural order of things. Uh, but really cannibalism uh, is, is simply ubiquitous and it is going to be practiced by, um, you know, most of these organisms at one point or another. 
Totally, exactly right. Though, I want to make clear also, I'm not implying that the inverse excuse applies where you can <laughs> you can take that logic and apply it back to human institutions like people and like corporations and all that because, come on, they got people in them. People ought to know better. And also, we are not condoning um, human cannibalism. Right, like, that's what I mean, yeah. Oh, I think you were just talking about the digital uh, media. Well, neither or, one. Okay. Neither actually eat, killing and eating other humans nor uh, doing stuff that's akin to cannibalism in, in metaphorical ways. Right. Now, survival cannibalism, eh. that's that's a different scenario. If somebody's already dead and you've got nothing else to live on, maybe, yeah. Maybe. But uh, then again, like, that's, that's a decision you're going to have to make in those dire situations. We can't make it for you. Uh, it would be, uh, you know, it would just be rude of me to rule on that. I do not know the particulars of your survival cannibalism. So if you are... Uh, in a survival cannibalism situation right now while listening to this podcast, uh, I cast no judgment. Eat your earbuds, <laughs> if that, that's what you should do. Well, maybe if you chew on the earbuds a little, it can distract you, right? It's kind of like sucking on a button if you're thirsty, right? Mm -hmm. the, I don't know if that actually works, but that's the old <laughs> wives' tale, right? This has been a lot of fun, Robert. Yeah, uh, another page in the, the book of cannibalism. Uh, likewise, uh, with a lot of these topics, there's so much more we could discuss on cannibalism. We'll probably come back around to cannibalism again, either generally or you know, regarding a specific organism at some point in the future. Uh, also, uh, I want to stress again that that Bill Shute book, uh, Cannibalism, is excellent. Uh, do pick it up. He wrote another one on vampires dealing with uh, uh, vampiric uh, organisms. Mm. And that too is an excellent read. So uh, either of those books are wonderful if you want to, like, uh, I guess, you know, slightly, uh, slightly ghastly uh, uh, biological read. Uh, they're, they're great books. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find them. That's where you'll find links out to social accounts. That's where you'll find a, a tab for our store where you can buy some merchandise. But if you want to help the show out, the best thing you can do is to rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so and subscribe. Subscribe to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Subscribe to Invention as well. Uh, that's the other show that Joe and I do. It is a, an invention by invention look at human techno history. Recently, we've been spending a lot of time talking about photography, mm -hmm. and now we're getting into the, the realm of motion pictures. But in exactly the opposite direction, I've just had in mind a very ancient invention that I want to go back to soon. Uh, so, so just keep that in mind as a tease. All right. A ancient super weapons. Yeah, absolutely. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.